0: Sometimes on Toasting the Classics, we talk about comic books and monster movies, and other times we talk about modernist British fiction. We like to keep you guessing. This week, we've got guest host Jay Schweig to talk about Virginia Woolf's novel, To the Lighthouse. Partly autobiographical and partly allegorical, this book looks short and light, but turns out to be much more complicated. Divided into three parts, the novel tells the story of a family visiting a guest house both before and after the First World War. We get a look into their psychology, a vivid literary snapshot of a bygone time, and the discussion of deep themes like art, communication, and perception. We've got some Talisker Scotch to sip while we try to wrangle with this thorny tale. So join us as one hour of time passes. It's time for episode 63 of Toasting the Classics to the Lighthouse. Welcome back to Toasting the Classics. This is Dave MacArthur. We've got a guest host today.
1: Hi, I'm Jay Schweig. Uh, I've been on this podcast twice before. The first time we did uh, the book We Android Stream of Electric Sheep*, uh, the basis for *Blade Runner*, and our drink was non-alcoholic beer—torture, so, <laughs> absolute torture, disgusting. Uh, and then the other, the other time was the uh, Hitchcock movie *To Catch a Thief*, and I think mm-hmm. the drink was like a French. We had oh no, we had Kentucky bourbon
0: because the lady likes bourbon. The the old lady on the, in the movie is a bourbon fan. Oh, maybe that's
1: right. Yeah. We did
0: some kind of bourbon.
1: I don't remember what, but
0: I guess those were, I don't know if I'd say they're esoteric, but they're not, uh, they're not your run of the mill classics. And this one, I think we got a little weirder. This was not a book that I knew. I know the author. I did a blog entry.
1: Well, you can you can say what it is. It was your pick. So what, what are we doing this week? I'm uh, probably the worst guest to have for this book because... Uh, Uh-oh. Why because is that? It's, well, it's kind of like one of those infomercial things where they're like, they're like, we have a doctor on. And what do you think about this, uh, this new <laughs> vitamin, Dr. Smith? And I'm like, yeah. it's fantastic. It's the greatest. Basically, I have... I mean, just as a spoiler, I have nothing negative to say about this book. I think this book is an absolute masterpiece. And the book is The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn. No, no, the book is, <laughs> uh, is nice. To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. So, uh,
0: You know, I almost read the Twilight books. I, it was like I was reluctant to read Harry Potter at first. I finally read them. I ended up really liking them. So I heard everybody talking about Twilight. And I was just about to pick it up because I think Michelle was little enough to have them. And I looked at the book and I was like, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. And then somebody mentioned to me that there's a scene where the vampires all play baseball and they have to play baseball during the rain so that everyone thinks that the sound of them hitting the balls with bats is thunder because they hit the balls so hard. I was just
1: like, that sucks. I was like, that's, I'm not reading that. That's terrible. So I remember in the movie, they actually do that baseball scene. And I remember actually having the thought, like, why are they spending so much time on the baseball? So they play they played baseball for like it was. it seemed like it was 10 minutes which is a long time in a movie so wow. about vampires but yeah. this is not that we're not doing twilight not on this episode maybe
0: at some point we'll do twilight but this week as you said we're doing uh, to the lighthouse by virginia wolf which weirdly enough i actually yeah. did back when i was doing my blog a lot more i read orlando and did a, and did a blog article about what i thought of orlando and i remember thinking i was way out of my depth talking about Virginia Woolf first of all it's like a famous feminist author and I was just kind of like I don't know anything I've never even taken a women's studies course or anything so I'm completely out of my depth with that and also just technically she's just a really good writer it's just kind of hard to what are you gonna you know what do she's I have so, to say
1: she's so good
0: how did this one come across your reading table like what how did you how did you come up with uh, reading this one
1: so I actually have a uh, I have a book club that we started very beginning of the the covid lockdown. I have a book club with my mom and my sister and my sister's okay. husband and okay. we read a lot of good books. Like we read, you know, Brothers Karamazov, we read some Kundera, you know, Moravia, Sebald, okay. and we read this book and I had never read any Virginia Woolf before and I think maybe I stupidly kind of like lumped her in with a lot of more 19th century British authors and I expected it Mm -hmm. to be like very flowery language and kind of like, well, you know, kind of piddly and and sort of boring. Um, I mean, the language is very complex in the book. I was going to say, I wrote down this sentence.
0: He was in a gray green somnolence, which embraced them all without need of words in a vast and benevolent lethargy of well-wishing that that one struck me. I was, there were a lot of sentences like that, but I kept coming across and I was like, I got to write one of these down because nobody writes like that it's like a bridge between what you're talking about with the 19th century like so convoluted writing that you can't understand it and like something new that's happening in the 20th century.
1: So it's definitely a little bit. And, and there's a weird element of stream of consciousness to it too, which definitely. is like, you know, the the 19th century kind of British writing. There's no stream of consciousness. I mean, it's very ornate, right. but there's nothing like, some, some parts of it could almost be like Jack Kerouac or something like that, right? I mean, because she yeah. has a stream of consciousness kind of rhythm to her. I think this book is kind of, almost too early
0: for stream of consciousness but there is an element of that there's definitely yeah i mean it's de- it definitely reads yeah. that way let's do a synopsis as it were in as much as there is a okay. plot that's one of the things there's a really good series of videos called it's called crash course and there's one about this book actually on youtube and i watched <laughs> it and the guy was talking about how the big dramatic tension is that in this book is whether or not the people at the dinner party are going to like the beef stew and I was like yeah it's it's not it's yeah. not really that kind of a book there's really not a lot of basically the way this book is it's it's three sections of book the first part is a family visiting a summer vacation house it and i think in the book it takes place on the isle of sky but the real thing is based on cornwall
1: i think it was based on something like in her life or something like that yeah um, it's ba- it's based on her i don't family. i don't know any
0: her family used to go to go cornwall ahead. to a vacation house and this is based on it, but it's in a completely different part of the British Isles. I mean, Cornwall's down in the very far southwest and Skye is in the entirely northwest up in the top of Scotland. But it's yeah. it's very, very much based on it. It's, it's like very autobiographical, actually, in a lot of ways. There's a first part. It's one year. It's, I think, right before World War One, And the family's visiting. It's very interior monologue for just about everybody. And I'd say it's about 120 pages of that first visit. And it's just all about the interrelationships between the father and the kids, and the wife, and the father, and a couple of extra sort of hangers on that they have.
1: Yeah, just like random people. Yeah. Well, because the the patriarch of the family, Mister Ramsey, is a Mm -hmm. is a professor of like philosophy or something like that. Maybe back then it was it was classics or something. But
0: I think I think um, it's um, from what it's like metaphysical philosophy or something like that. So
1: yeah, they talk about uh, they There's that great passage where they talked about, you know, his work is like imagining a dinner table in like isolation in a tree, which is just that there's that great passage where they talk about that and like kind of the nature of knowledge. I think it was through Lily's mind. Like Lily was remembering and Lily is the one who paints, right? Lily was remembering like, right. You know, someone explaining Mr. Ramsey's like what he does uh, work. work Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: It sounded like it would be pretty esoteric whatever he was doing. Well, but anyway, so there's the fir- that first section and then there's a and then it, there's the last section of the book, a similarly long passage where the family comes back years after the war. Let me yeah? jump
1: in if I can for a second. The yeah, first yeah. half It's really interesting. The first half is almost structured like a Victorian novel. Like you said, a lot of the tension is based on social things, Mm -hmm. and it kind of sets things up, like Mrs. Ramsey has the dinner and everything like that, and she welcomes these people to their house, and there are even little things like uh, Paul and Minta lose Minta's grandmother's brooch on the beach, and Paul's like, oh, I'll go into town and buy a better one, and so all these things are set up in the first half that kind of like if you did a mirror image of it then it would be like roughly the same kind of tone and everything the book dramatically changes after that first half no 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 i think there's tons to say about that yeah but i just did the
0: basics and the basic story story you know like i said in as much as there is a story but it's that first section where they're there before the war and then another section where they're there after the war and they're connected by what i think is the I think the best part of the book or the, the, the easiest, most interesting read of the book, probably if I read the book multiple times, I'd get more out of the, the last and first sections, but the middle part called time passes, which is almost like from the perspective yeah. of the house, like the, the house is kind of aging and watching yeah. time go by. And you learn a little bit about what's happened to the family over the course of the war years. I don't know. That part just really struck me. It's not very long maybe 20, 30 pages, the middle part. Yeah. I was having a little trouble getting through the first part. I was trying to figure out like what was going on and like what I could hang my hat on in reading the book in the first half. And then I really enjoyed that middle bit, which made me more interested
1: in what happened in the last part. The first part is beautifully written. Um, It's beautifully written, but if the entire book were just the first part continued, it wouldn't be like the incredible like work of genius that it is. And the suddenness... With like, you know, because that's kind of how time is. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. you 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 know, you wake up one day and you're like, oh, my God, all this stuff happened like, you know, 20 right. years ago or something like that. And that part mm-hmm. really kind of does that because the first part zeroes in on so many specific details, like of the dinner and of making the, the dishes and where people sit, sit around the table. And then the uh-huh. time passes part starts and all this stuff has happened. People have died. And it's just it's so sudden it kind of does this amazing job of pushing these things kind of into the background like you actually mm-hmm. feel like you know that time has passed
0: do you remember that time we spent like a day drawing maps of Gogo 13 and trying to beat the game
1: <laughs> that of course, was like of
0: course that was like 25 years ago it, uh, you know like that's, that's what happens when you get to us you know you get to a certain age and it's just like I keep thinking about things. I'm always like, wait, that thing was this number of years ago. And it just doesn't make sense. It's just baffling. But And this isn't even that much time. Yeah. It's mostly because of the war. And I was thinking yeah. about it. I, I think something to put that in perspective is not quite like a war, but like COVID. And I think about things that had happened before COVID. And they don't yeah. really, they weren't that long ago. But then you yeah. think about how everything in the world just kind of almost lay fallow for like a year. And then things started back up again.
1: Funny, because I this is not super on topic, but I was comparing COVID to a war in a similar way where, you know, now that I mean, knock on wood, it seems like things are kind of getting back to normal. Like, you know, I'm pretty in person things without masks and stuff like that. Yeah. And, but it kind of reminds me of a war where like, you know, in World War II, France was divided. And then after the war ended, they're like, okay, go back and everything's normal. And people are like, I can't, this person like fought for Vichy yeah. France and like I was part of the resistance and stuff like that. And right. I feel like there's a, an ingredient of that where, you know, as a, as a world, we've just been through this traumatic, like almost three years mm-hmm. and they're like, Hey, go back. Everything's normal now. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, it's you can't just return to 2019.
0: No, in so, a lot of ways. No, what, what has really changed? I mean, is a lot really all that. It's like a lot of it was the Trump years and stuff like that. they were really the weird thing that sort of put some division between people. It wasn't even so much. I think COVID yeah. was almost like this event that everybody was divided about it was like some people were pretending there was no pandemic i guess yeah i don't know it's um you want to get you want to get our drinks out yes all right so you chose the drink this time and it looks like okay so you already had this on hand how much did that bottle cost you out of curiosity uh i have no idea actually so this is so what we have is we have talisker which is from
1: the isle of sky correct is that right yeah, I think it's the. It says it's the only Scotch made uh, on the Isle of Skye. That may be true. I'm actually
0: doing an unboxing because I had to go out and buy a bottle of Talisker. Um, oh, it's not too hard to unbox actually. It's not that exciting. I thought there was going to be more more wrapping involved, but. It's more fun than unwrapping packages of uh, LOL dolls or whatever. We have a uh, talisker, which is a single malt scotch. I think we've talked about scotch a couple of times before on the show. This means that it's just made from one grain, it's not a mixture, it's not a blend. And this is definitely going to be pretty peaty, right? Have you started drinking yours? I have not. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you go ahead and you go ahead and take a sip while I uh, get this open. I li- I like these kinds of scotch. I, these kinds of scotch. Actually, this doesn't smell as peaty as I was thinking. What do you think? Oh, you actually have a proper, um, Glencairn. I know. Glass, I, have a, right? I have
1: a fancy, fancy one.
0: I have those. You know, I have so much right now because we we moved to New York and our movers were terrible. They're like the worst movers in the world. And we, we had everything we said should be here in New York, went to the storage bin in Virginia and we don't know where any of it is. It's like impossible to get it out. So uh, things like my Glencairn glasses are not available. No, that's really smooth. That doesn't taste like what I was expecting at all. Actually. You drinking it neat. Mm -hmm. Okay. I put a little bit of ice in mine.
1: I'm currently defrosting the fridge. So we have no ice. (laughs) um, I'm drinking it neat out of, out of necessity. Why
0: do you have to defrost your fridge?
1: What happened to your fridge? The freezer, ju- the freezer just iced up, so it got too much ice in it. Oh, so. okay. it's a it's a crazy Friday night around here. I was like, finally, yeah. I have time to defrost the fridge. So. Isn't
0: it exciting being in your forties? The kinds of things you do with an evening.
1: It's just, it's just awesome. You're, I was like perfectly good happy defrosting the fridge all day. Yeah. yeah, Friday. I mean, it's Friday night, right? You got to do something. Yeah, well, it's actually pretty delicious. I haven't had this for a while. No,
0: this is good. I like this. Is not tasting like at all what I thought it was going to yeah. taste like. I thought this was going to be something. What
1: did, what did you think it was going to be like?
0: I thought it was just going to be straight Pete. Like just, it just doesn't taste like that at all to me. But this, yeah. that's why I was, I was asking you what it, what it cost you, if you remember. Because I had, I don't know whether it's New York or what, but this here, this was $72 for the bottle. It was pretty steep.
1: So I don't know whether that's what it's like. Oh my everywhere. gosh, You're kidding. Yeah, I don't know. I don't well, know if I, I don't think I've ever paid more than like forty dollars for Talisker. Mm.
0: Oh, is this? So this is a regular drink of yours.
1: Well, I mean, part. I've had it like since grad school. I think I've I've liked it. So yeah, it's kind of a cheap choice, I guess, because I already, you know, I already know it and stuff like that. But I think had a bottle. Already had a bottle. This is already had a bottle and everything yeah. like that.
0: Yeah. No, it's perfect because it's from the Isle of Skye, which is a small place, and that's where this book takes place, at least in the fictional account so i think it's perfect and i really don't need to have my arm twisted to drink scotch especially single malt scotch it's good good stuff i haven't been drinking as much lately i've actually gone on kind of a bourbon kick for some reason over the last couple years but i have lots of good Mm. scotch what kind
1: of bourbon do you like
0: I've had lots, lots of different kinds. Of Angels Envy is one that I had. I had. I um, like.
1: I like the Woodford.
0: Woodford, Woodford yeah, Woodford Reserve. I had that. That's really good. I think I had that. I think I might have gotten that for our last show, if I'm not mistaken. I think we might have had Woodford for the to catch a maybe. Yeah. Buffalo Trace. I had a bottle of that. bunch of different things. Everything was in storage. I just found. I had this like really nice liquor collection, especially that I've built up from doing the podcast and I just got it out of storage and it's actually in Virginia. I have hardly anything here. Only the shows that I've done so far is what
1: I have here. When I was back in Virginia visiting uh, my mom, I guess it was actually last summer. um, My sister and I realized that, you know, my mom doesn't really drink. And so Mm -hmm. she amasses these little, like the, the travel size like airplane (laughs) liquor bottles and she had enough, for like a full bar so we made like a full bar but it was like tiny like each (laughs) she had you know like malibu rum and like scotch and bourbon and vodka where do you come by those now you
0: know you know you're not allowed to drink on planes anymore like you can't you can't bring your own liquor and like pour yourself a drink on the plane anymore it's like against the law like you can actually go to jail for doing that apparently they said that one time i thought this was america I know, right? What did I have? I think I just got like a little bottle of wine or something at the airport one time, which I've never actually done before. But it occurred to me, I was like, oh, I'll get like a bottle of wine. It's cheap here. And then I can have it. I could have a wine on the plane for like way less than what they charge. And then I get on and they're like, remember, it is illegal to drink on the plane your own alcohol. And I was like that. They just changed that rule. It's the first time I ever brought alcohol on a plane. Like,
1: but anyway, so I drank it anyway, but, you know. When I was when I was in Israel at the Tel Aviv airport, you know, just like any other airport, you can buy duty-free liquor and wine and stuff like that, right? And then you, you get to the place where you, like, actually get on the plane. They have an announcement that you can't bring any liquid on the plane. And so oh, these, wow. like, gate agents had, like, boxes and boxes of liquor that they would <laughs> just be like, do you have it? Do you have have any liquid and they would take it from them even if they just bought it like 10 minutes earlier usually you go through security and then there's a duty-free shop no no but i'm yeah i mean the people right when you're getting on the plane like oh. they're they're secure because there's extra security at tel aviv
0: is it only for international flights or is it just like a trick that the israeli security service is playing on people who are like hey you want to buy a bottle of something
1: nice <laughs> like, and like give it to
0: and give it to <laughs> moshe at the at the security checkpoint yeah you know? Like, yeah that seems like, like that's a, you that can't have any right. Kit
1: Kat either. You can't have any Kit Cats either. So you have to give me that Kit Kat. Um, like you just so
0: that up. Let's get back to the book, huh? Did I ask you like what was why why did you choose this one? Like what was your what was what was your relationship with the
1: book? You said you did the book the book the book club about it. The thing about the book is it really it has so many layers and there's so many subtle things to it. I really think it's the kind of book that you could read like 10 times and get something new out of it each time. It um,
0: definitely seems to me like a book that I would benefit from reading more than once. I definitely felt that way. The first reading, I mean, a lot of what I was taking away was just like beautiful language. And I kept thinking, I was like, wow, what am I going to say on a podcast about that? You know, like a Virginia Woolf's a really good writer. You know, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> it's really like, I, I really can't like argue with that. Like yeah. it's, it's really, she's really good. It's not uh it's not great uh, argumentative. It's not like a, uh, One of our most popular shows is just like a comedy album of Bill Cosby's that we did because Bill Cosby's Mm -hmm. controversial. So I feel like I want to say something controversial about Virginia Woolf. And, you know, I guess my hot take could be, you know, she sucks, but it's just not true. Like, she's a really good writer.
1: Yeah, I cannot endorse that. No, Yeah. yeah, you
0: don't want to be. A while back, my wife wanted to do a podcast episode with me. So I was like, okay, pick a book. Like, let's read something. So she was like, I want to do Madame Bovary by Flaubert. And I was like, okay, sure, cool. So I did my due diligence. I read the book. I took notes. And then she was just kind of like, yeah, I'm too busy to do a podcast. Like I just never gotten around to doing it, but I read it. And one of the things that really, this is a book from 1857, mind you. One of the things that struck me about it is the way that the, almost like the camera view of the writer would shift from the internal monologues and like, you know, omniscient about a person's thoughts from one character to another seamlessly throughout the course of the book. And I remember thinking like, wow, that's a really, I don't think people quite do that anymore. Usually you stick with one character's viewpoint. But then I read this and I was like, that's absolutely what's happening here. Totally. The the, the camera viewpoint is dancing between characters like really effortlessly. And I read it. I read some outside, you know, I did some outside research about the book and everybody was talking about how that was a new modernist technique at the turn of the century. And I was like, I swear to God, I just read Flaubert. And he's doing the exact same thing. And I think it's I think he's like a pre-modernist, like is doing a yeah. lot of the same techniques. Cause there's not there is some stuff that happens in the book. It's not that the book doesn't have a plot, but what you really take away is this very vivid picture of the place where it takes place. The whole book was about this one town in France and the yeah, people I've read that live there. I've read it. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a very similar writing style. It's it's This is very vividly about a place and about a very small set of people. Yeah. You get into all their heads and the little tiny details that they're upset about and they're concerned with really pop and really stick in your head. It's pretty hard to say a whole lot about it in some ways, I was thinking. I don't know. What do you think?
1: I mean, I think it's, it's amazing. So one incredible thing about this book is, you know, like you said, there are different characters that, you know, she goes inside the head of like, James when he's a little kid, and then like Uh James and Cam when they're on the boat finally approaching uh, the lighthouse. But there are all these other characters. Like you mentioned, the house is kind of the protagonist in Time Passes. Yeah. And also there's this amazing trick where at the end, I think the ending where Lily finally has her vision with the painting, it's kind of incredible because it's like you, you kind of find yourself asking, was Lily the main character the entire time or was even the painting main character the entire time right because a lot of the book is about memory and knowledge and a painting is a way of sort of encapsulating a place or trying to capture some sort of feeling and so you know in a way you can say the book a lot of the book is about communication right because it's about
0: communication
1: yeah how do we communicate certain things to other people
0: okay right well i thought a lot of the book was about was about art
1: like a lot but of art is art as a method art as a, art as a method right.
0: of communication right specifically yeah. art as a method because i was thinking there's there's painting and there's mr ramsey's work and i sort of got the impression that you know his concerns about like will my will my books l- l- last forever you know will anybody care it's yeah. like i'm like those are probably virginia Woolf's concerns about her work right
1: on some level i'm sure she was i don't i don't think in the same no it's, it's weird because Virginia Woolf was definitely a feminist. And when she has like, because Mr. Ramsey is a very kind of domineering character. When she has a character like that, thinks something like that, is she putting herself in that character or is that character taking the place for like a lot of, cause I'm sure she went up, against a lot of crap being such a brilliant female writer at the time when she was writing right and so i i wonder if someone like mr ramsey if if he's more like people that she had to deal with as a female writer or if
0: i think both of those things are true i think i think i think she's sort of maybe even almost unconsciously expressing her own well i'm sure it's conscious everything this is a short work everything's conscious in here but yeah i think she's expressing her own doubts and feelings about being an artist while also representing this guy as being probably some, yeah. some of the types of guys she dealt with all the time. And a yeah. lot of Mrs. Ramsey's thoughts about dealing with him would have been probably some of the thoughts that she had, but also Mrs. Ramsey is not, not a feminist, right? She's definitely like my place is the home. And yeah. I'm, 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 I'm naturally subservient to this man. So she's not really like Virginia yeah. Woolf's Wolf's perspective on this, I wouldn't think in any way. Although she was married, right? Yeah, she was. Yeah. And, and so, it
1: seems like she was ha- she was happily married too. So she,
0: it I think like, she was pretty happily. I think her husband was actually yeah. a pretty good guy from all the things that I read about it. Although her life didn't turn out very happily, I guess. I can't remember how old she well, was. Well, I think she, she was... Did you I read about she, her? I
1: think she was, was you know... Um, she killed herself by... I can't remember how she killed herself...
0: So what I read... she's the
1: one who walked walked into the ocean or something?
0: He's the one who went into either a lake or a river with her pockets filled with stones so that she would sink and drown. And I was just like, is that real? That Would that work? Like, that doesn't even seem like that would she work. Yeah. I don't even know if this is apocryphal or true, but the lead singer from Joy Division supposedly stood on a giant block of ice with a noose around his neck and just let the ice melt slowly and ha- hanged himself. In slow motion. I don't know whether that's true. Somebody told me that when I, don't, I was a kid. I don't
1: think that. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's it true. That sound, might have been someone else or something. I mean, a lot of.
0: So that's what I was thinking when I read the Virginia Woolf thing, the story about
1: how she committed suicide. I was like, is that is that real? That I don't know. Maybe people people kill themselves that way though. Like Paul salon like I think just walked into the Seine or something. <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me of. Uh, of, you know sometimes i haven't done it in a while but sometimes i do this thing where you like float in the in a tank for an hour and like the water has epsom salt in it so so the the density is is big enough or is great right. enough that you float on the water right mm-hmm. and so it's you float there for an hour it can be pretty relaxing but i you was did telling that? my dad yeah i've done that a bunch of times oh
0: huh, okay yeah. where do you do that like
1: but, at a spa or something yeah there's just a place that does it i mean oh. and we're in the midwest so it's super cheap it's like 30 dollars a session or something <laughs> like that but um,
0: all kinds of strange victorian treatments are like completely <laughs> expensive in the midwest yeah
1: yeah yeah if you know. do if you do this if you do it twice then they give you leeches for half off which yeah is also pretty nice sweet. yeah but, that's um, good
0: you can take yeah. the cure for very
1: cheap yeah I'm was a, sick of spending uh, in- so much money on leeches. So I was telling my dad about this, and I'm like, and it's really, you know, it's relaxing. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of nice. And he's like, "Do you float face up or face down?" I was like, well. <laughs> why would, why would he ask that? Wow, I think that would be a great accidental death. It's like, yeah. it's like this. Oh, guy, you didn't tell he, me. Uh... You
0: didn't tell me I was supposed to float <laughs> back on my back. And then you, and your family sues because he didn't explain it to you.
1: nowhere in the pod does it say you have to float face (laughs) up (laughs) you know it's like but it actually made me think maybe think of it like what would happen if you tried to do that i think just naturally you're right right. i think yeah
0: i think you just you'd probably i don't know even if you really tried hard it's like it's like they say if you try to hold your breath until you die you just pass out and then wake up and you start breathing again naturally yeah I think you'd do the same thing if you were capable of it in water, but the mechanics of it seem, it seems wonky to me. It's like, did Sylvia Plath really stick her head in the oven? That's kind of poetic. That that one seems possible. I don't know. Maybe
1: it's kind of similar. Who was the guy you were talking about? Salah? Uh, Paul Salon, the German German poet. He was like, I mean, he was pretty depressed because like, I think his whole family was killed at... uh, maybe bergen bilsen or something like that. Well, one of one of the concentration um, camps then. Yeah. Anyway. And so and so then he moved to France and he wrote he was like Romanian and he wrote in German as kind of like, you know, he spoke German, but he wrote in he wrote his poems in German like after the after the war and stuff. So he was depressed and and there was also something like I think someone accused him of plagiarism or something like that. And what what was his name? Uh, they say just walked into the sand i think yeah uh, yeah well because so book. it ends with art is kind of a means of communication
0: right it ends with the painting and lily finally finishes her painting painting and says i've had my vision which i sort of figured stands in for like a final line of the book from the author as well right like it's the same thing like virginia Woolf writing this book and saying i've had my vision so her sister, her sister is what? What's her name? It's Vanessa something, right? Vanessa Bell. Vanessa Bell, who was a painter, who was a famous painter also. She read this book and she said it was Mrs. Ramsey's depiction. in the book was like having her mother resurrected and like getting to see her mother again. It was so vividly drawn and so much like their mother that it was like seeing her again. And then the house was, it seemed very much based on the house that they lived, that they sorry, not lived at, but that they would vacation at when they were kids and So I was thinking, I mean, it's so, the book is very, realism is probably the wrong literary term to use, but you know what I mean? It's very realistic. Like it's, that's what it It seems like it carries a lot of symbolic weight, but can it carry a lot of symbolic weight if it's just actually depictions of real life of like what their mother was like and what their house was like and things like that? Like how much of that is artistic choice and, and like, symbolic construction if it's just real if it's just autobiographical,
1: i mean the thing is that you know you can take like say say your say your family's having a picnic right you can take a photo of the picnic in such a way that it elicits symbolism yeah even though technically you're just taking a picture of a real thing that's happening you can place it in a context such as to, you know, evoke some sort of symbolism or some sort of meaning. So I think it is possible for Virginia Woolf to recount a lot of things very autobiographically, but still effused with symbolism.
0: I think that's totally true. I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's almost as if it were a photograph and it were positioned in a way to, to, to like you said, elicit symbolism to make people, you know, to to talk about it cuz i was thinking about oh this is all about the rational world and how the rational atheistic world sort of conflicts with the world of art and all kinds of things like that were sort of percolating in my mind as i was reading the book but then i read that and i was like well wait a minute maybe it's just a story about her mom like but i don't think so i don't think so i think clearly it's not <laughs> and clearly there's more going on there
1: this is an interesting tack because someone like someone like rembrandt if you look at rembrandt's paintings you know rembrandt would do his paintings and, you know, his contemporaries would be like, oh, that really looks like that thing. Like, it really looks like the anatomy lesson or something right. like that. Like these right. surgeons dissecting a body or something. Yeah. But later on, people have started to realize that there is symbolism in the way certain things were chosen sure. to be depicted. Like there's a famous, uh, there's a famous like, you know, analysis of this in Sebald where he talks about the anatomy lesson and how Rembrandt. Has like the guy's left hand on his right arm or something like that, and they're like Rembrandt would not make that mistake, right? That's not a mistake. That is an obvious thing that he's trying to show about the Infra, nature sure. of. But yeah, there's. I mean, I think it's kind of a similar thing where, you know, it's easy to look at Rembrandt with kind of like you know, just a, a cursory glance and be like, oh, he's painting, you know, an a- an anatomy sure. lesson or yeah. something like that. But there's so much more symbolism there's so much more meaning in subtle things that he did so in the same way i think virginia wolf could be like this is my mom and this is how like my you know my house was growing up and stuff like that but there's so much extra stuff in the way she depicts it
0: for example the book's called to the lighthouse a lot of the conflict between the boy and his father and then the last part of the book is all about going to the lighthouse and none of that's autobiographical so You have to ask yourself, what is that about? What does the lighthouse mean? Why is that a big part of the book? I think maybe in some ways it was almost like she was, and I don't know if she would believe this, but it was almost as if she was depicting this sort of rational, calculating, realistic view of the world as being the male and the sort of like, you know, emotional, artistic, hopeful side of things as being the female. And the, the little boy wanting to go to the lighthouse and the dad's like, nope. The the tide's going to be bad tomorrow and there's no way we're going to do it. And the the woman's like, oh, he's totally right. But I really don't want to dash the hopes of the little boy. And it's like, that's kind of what I was seeing as a a symbolic struggle there. It'd be weird if Virginia Woolf actually felt that way. I don't think she really thought women thought that way. I don't think I don't think she was in this corner of thinking that women were not rational or something like, obviously, that doesn't make any sense from what I've read of her. If this is about feminism, it's pretty subtle in this book. Much yeah. more so, much more so than Orlando. Orlando was just all about it. It was all about gender fluidity and and what g- different genders do and things like that.
1: If I had to pick like feminist story arc in the book, it would be how you know Mrs. Ramsey keeps telling Lily to marry William Banks, and she's like, "Oh, they're perfect together." You know, William Banks is a widower, and Lily's kind of lonely, and then they just end up not getting married not even really having, uh-huh. it seems like a romantic relationship, but just, you know, Lily doesn't marry and she kind of focuses, you know, she's the book ends with her focused on art, you know, right. which I think Virginia Woolf saw as kind yes. of a noble, yes, um, as kind of a noble pursuit. And so, and, and I think she's like still friends with William Banks. Like she talks about how they, they were friends and she's friends with, um, mr ramsey as well or maybe i'm confusing the passages who is lily, the is lily to the family
0: is lily one of the daughters
1: no right the way she talks about mr ramsey is not the way yeah. a daughter okay. talks about. there's there's honestly quite a few characters
0: considering the brevity of the novel and it's you know it's not a whole lot that happens there's quite a few characters in the book and i, I had a little trouble keeping them straight because I, I there's a couple of kids in the family i know there's i think there are eight children or they're really I okay they're i didn't eight. even think yeah, there were yeah. That many, but oh. yeah okay 'Cause there's Mr. Tansley who's around who's he's the atheist. The atheist. Guy, who's yeah. like annoying everybody. And again, that's yeah. what I was thinking, like, oh, the atheist is like annoying everyone. Like he's like yeah, like dumping cold water on everybody's artistic and creative endeavors.
1: And I was like, Yeah, that yeah.
0: okay, I could see that being symbolic. And then I don't remember who Mr. Banks is. I lost Mr. Banks somewhere in the shuffle. Right. Uh-huh. Mr. Banks
1: was the one who kept annoying Lily because like Lily would try to paint and then he he would commenting be like right her behind painting. her. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah and they started was ind- ruining the painting by commenting on the quality of it right yeah later after yeah. The time passes yeah right. so it's the same i don't know if it's the same painting actually i think it
0: i, I sort it of thought be. it was either the same painting or she was like trying again doing the same
1: subject the same yeah the same kind yeah. of vantage point
0: i wasn't 100% sure on on that so what do you, what do you think of the of the section time passes is that the best part of the book or am i wrong
1: about that you know the book is so Everything feeds into everything else. So it's hard for me to pick out a best part. Okay. I would say I remember the first time I ever read this book, that was the part that definitely shocked me the most. The way they yes. describe Mrs. Ramsey's passing. Yeah. How like Mr. Ramsey, it's like, you know, he held out his arms in the night and Mrs. Ramsey having passed away suddenly. Yeah. Nights earlier was not there. And you're just like, whoa. It's just, yeah. I actually went reminds back
0: and restarted the section time passes after I read that. Cause I was like, wait, what just happened? I was like, yeah, did you just bury the lead here? Which is absolutely what yeah. she's doing, but on purpose. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting and effective. You know, there's books that do that. Just kind of like drop a bomb like that casually. And yeah. I guess Prue also is dead later in yeah. the future. And, but yeah, that was definitely, and- that struck me. And I went back and started the, the ch- that portion of the book again, because it was just kind of, I wasn't really picking up on it being all that different from some of the other sort of books of this era that I've read before that I kind of didn't really take a lot from the, the first section of the book is just a whole bunch of people. And I wasn't sure what was happening and it was good. It was yeah. beautiful language. And I was thinking a lot about the symbolism of what was happening, but it wasn't really making a lot of concrete impression. It just turned me around in the middle there. I just, there was something very different about that section of the book that I changed my reading of it.
1: She's such a deft writer that like, she does these things where she introduces things that make you reevaluate what you read before, right? Like, you yes. know, when yes. at this at the start of time passes where you know you find out that Mrs. Ramsey has died, mm-hmm. that makes you reevaluate all the stuff before as kind of like the memories of Mrs. Ramsey's life. When really right. you're thinking about it as like, it's like this narrative and there are all these people involved and Mrs. Ramsey is one of the central characters. And then by uh-huh. having her die halfway through, it actually reminds me of like some of the, you know, Woody Allen has like two or three movies where they start off like Shakespearean tragedies, but then the ending is flipped. So like crimes and misdemeanors where you really think he's gonna, the guy's going to be like, the guy's going to be, um, you know, brought to justice for killing his, his mistress and essentially the same movie, which is match point.
0: Yeah. Right. You you know, for some reason I saw crimes and misdemeanors a really long time ago, maybe even when I was like a kid, because my dad was a huge Woody Allen fan, but I saw match point in the theater when it came out. I really, really liked that one. I liked that movie a lot, even though I know it's just kind of a rehashing of the previous movie, but it's almost the same movie.
1: Only it doesn't have the,
0: didn't have the tennis metaphor, but yeah,
1: I feel like it's a similar thing though, where, she starts off in a way that like a lot more classic novels, you know, like the classic novel structure would have like, oh, this person should marry this person. Will it work out? And like, and, but then, you know, that middle section is kind of like the break into modernity and it just does it. So it does it so well.
0: I, I actually thought the middle part, this is kind of lame, but, but I've read a lot of Stephen King recently and it felt like one of his books for some reason he does these kind of digressions that are there's this part i don't know if you ever read the stand the one about the big plague and there's this bit where he jumps aside to this there's this whole other chapter and it's just like all the stuff that's happening as the the kind of world is ending is just going on with the characters then all of a sudden there's this one chapter that switches to the viewpoints of like 20 different people all over the country, like getting into various mishaps um, during the, d- as the plague oh, sets in. And it's just like a really, the chapter really stands out. I don't know. It reminded me that it, I just wanted to read this one multiple times. Cause I just liked the way it was outside the rest of the narrative in, a, in, a, in a strange sort of way, it sort of changed the whole way I looked at the book. I, I liked um, it was from the perspective of the old lady, like the caretaker lady. I thought it really stuck me. I know, I love that. And The House and just everything about that. Like I read Orlando and it was a really good book. I didn't really feel like I was missing a whole lot on the first read through, if you know what I mean. This one, I did feel like I probably would benefit from reading
1: lots of times. This is my second time reading it. Also, I've started Orlando and I've started The Waves, um, which is her last book and both books i really i didn't get too far in because i'm like i really should just reread to the lighthouse because it just made such an <laughs> impression on me i was wow. like why even why even like read i mean and i'm sure they're good in their own ways and stuff like that but i haven't heard yeah or, orlando, was or orlando was orlando. good orlando was good
0: i liked it a lot um I, I would not say anything bad about that book i just don't know if it was as like i said like dense like this one, I feel like there was a lot more meat yeah. on the bone.
1: I mean, I think this one is like—it's so hard to say like what my favorite books are. But mm-hmm. if I had to pick like the top ten, this one would definitely be in there.
0: Wow, that's that's powerful praise. I think in some ways, well, I've,
1: I've only I've only read like eleven books, so it's sort okay, of fair enough. That, just, but...
0: So, what's the book you're leaving out? I guess is the main question. Um, <laughs> but I um, that's Twilight again. A lot of times when I do these shows. Somebody will pick something and because they like we did a show on uh, Inside Lewin Davis, the Coen Brothers movie. Oh, yeah. And honestly, my watching of it, I was just kind of like, yeah, it's not even it's nowhere near my favorite Coen Brothers movie. It's OK. There's nothing wrong with it. But because my friend Chris picked it and wanted to do it for the show, I really paid a lot of attention. I almost I kind of felt that way about this one because I don't know if I would have necessarily had a massive impression of this book if I'd just read it. And I was having a little bit of... Yeah. I was not ripping through it, like the first part. I was having a little bit of trouble forcing myself to... Not because it was bad, but I was just... I don't know, just wasn't gripping. It stands, it's like you said with Orlando. It, sometimes something just doesn't grip you, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. It, it gave me... Like, I was paying a lot more attention to it and, and enjoying it a lot more because you had said, oh, this is a really great piece. Yeah, I um, would
1: say for part, for part of the recommendation, I would say it's a good idea to just... Stick with the first half, even though the first half is pretty dense. And it's it's one of these books where it's kind of rough because, you know, if you read kind of page turner novels and stuff, this is the kind of book where you really can read like three or four pages and then put it down and just kind of think about what. They went over. That's you know, that's the part, way I read I it. That when I yeah when
0: I say I was having trouble reading it, that's what I was doing. I was reading ten maybe fifteen pages, and then I kind of would be like, okay, I, I feel like I'm breaking a sweat here. I'm gonna like put it down for a little bit, and I'll come back to yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I again, I've said this multiple times, but for some reason, that middle bit gripped me a lot more. I don't know. It wasn't like Spider-Man fighting Thanos or something like that, but it was it was still like for some something about that middle part was like, oh, I like the I like what she's doing here. This is interesting yeah. to me. This, this weird way where the where the person who seemed like the protagonist of the first half of the book just died off camera. And and then the description of the house and the aging of the house, for some reason, I just really was into that part. I don't know why.
1: But obviously, that part would not have held the same emotional heft were it not for the first half.
0: No, not at all. But literally, the, 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 that passage is called Time Passes, and there was just something very evocative in the way... The passage of time was described in there Um, and the sort of just entropy of a house left to itself and the idea of the books kind of moldering in their in their spines and stuff like I don't know little things like that just really stuck in my mind
1: well and it's also amazing because you know one of the things that that is kind of a theme I guess is things being left behind so you know Uh Uh, Mr. Ramsey, like you were talking about with, he's wondering if anyone's going to read his books like 200 years later, but also Lily, when she's doing her painting, she's like, this will probably just be rolled up in an attic somewhere. I found that very interesting how after the first half, you know, it's not like it rejoins the house 10 years later and Mr. Ramsey is like tidying up. It's someone you've never met before. Who's not even, who's just an employee of the family. And she's like, Oh, this place is a mess. Yeah. And it's, it's just a really weird way of kind of approaching that setting. It reminds me of, there's a really weird thing that happens with, maybe it's different with like college towns or something like that. But I remember, you know, when I was in, in grad school in Ithaca, there were a lot of places where I just knew a lot of people because I was Uh there for, you know, a while. Oh, and you go back and there's nobody there anymore, right? I I went back like four years later and I'm like, all the places are still there, like the same coffee shops, the same like yep. restaurants and stuff. Yep. But I'm like a stranger there now, which is such a weird thing. And that kind of reminded me of that same feeling with time that's, passes where.
0: That's probably one of the reasons why that was so powerful to me, because I have had that feeling many times. I've lived in cities yeah. for a couple of years and then you go back. I remember I went back to New Orleans. Um, And I was there a little bit after Katrina, but mostly my time in New Orleans was before Katrina. And then there was the city after Katrina. And I didn't really live there anymore. And the first couple of times I went back, I felt like I was walking through like a ghost of my old life there. Like there was, like you said, like none of the people that I used to recognize at the coffee shops and things like that were still there. and None of my friends still lived in the city. And it was just very, very weird. Like it was like. Yeah, I, I I know exactly what you mean by that. Because the place meant a lot to me at the time. And it was filled with yeah. like you said, like actual people that I knew and things. But I, I sometimes I just think about that. Like, he, like we live in a house here in New York. This house was built about a hundred years ago. And sometimes I just think yeah. about like all the people that have lived in that building over the years. And like all the stories that would have been here. We went to my son does scouts in a church basement over on 71st street. And it's, I mean, that church has got to go back to the 1850s. Right. And we were down in the basement and I was looking around, I was thinking like of all the people over the years, maybe it's because I read this book, I was thinking it, but I was literally thinking all the people that must've worked so hard to keep this place from being filled with rats and being moldy. And like, just, I mean, hundreds of different people over the years that, that kept this place from falling apart. there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff like that in New York, actually, because everything's, you know, yeah. fairly old and it's been heavily used over over the centuries. Maybe I'm just prone to those sort of sort of thoughts. That's why I enjoyed that middle yeah. part of the book quite a bit. There's a couple of different symbols that I kind of wanted to talk through and see what you thought of them. Like, why do they have a skull in their room?
1: Yeah. The children I mean, have like it's... a
0: pig skull in the room or something.
1: I don't know. I mean, I mean, that could be, it could be about mortality or something, right? Mortality is a big part of the book. Is it similar to like the the pig skull in Lord of the flies? Is it some kind of a reference to the devil? I don't, I don't know. I mean, Lord of the flies came after this book, right?
0: Oh Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Lord of the flies is like from the fifties, but I was just thinking, is that a similar symbol? Like it. Oh, I don't know. A pig skull is such a strange thing to have in a children's room. Like, and the the old lady who's taking care of the house, she goes and she's like, "Well, what were they thinking, putting a pig skull in the kids' room?" And I'm like, "Yes, could I have that question answered for me at some point?" I don't know. They're like, "The children are having trouble sleeping because we put this pig skull in the room." And I'm like, "Yeah, of course. What what is going on here? Like, what this doesn't make this is like a symbol without much justification to exist in the book. I I, I didn't understand that."
1: I, w- I wonder if part of it is like the dad, w- you know, I think one of the things that made the dad kind of not as, you know, that created the tension between the dad and the children was it seemed like uh-huh. the dad didn't really treat the children like children. He treated them like adults.
0: Yeah, even, like an adult. When they were kids. An adult, if you stick a pig skull in the
1: room, they're going to react completely <laughs> differently <laughs> to the way, that, the way the child would. Yeah. So a reasonable a reasonable adult would be like, thank you for the pig skull. Exactly. I appreciate
0: it. <laughs> oh, that's a very that's a very nice gift. That doesn't trouble me at all. I won't have any any trouble sleeping whatsoever, looking at the pig skull with its mouth hanging open, like leering at me every night <laughs> when I sleep. I might ask questions about why you put it in my room, but, you know, it's not going to keep me awake or anything. I'm not sure I understand the lighthouse. What's what's the symbolism of the lighthouse for you? That's a big one. So I feel like you probably have a theory there.
1: I mean, you know, the lighthouse, there are a lot of very heavy handed metaphors it could stand for, like, for instance, just vision or like some sort of perception. Right. Because I think a, a big part of the book is about perception and I don't uh-huh. think it's, you know, really a coincidence in the two things. Well, obviously, it's not a coincidence because she wrote it that way. But, you know, they reach the right. lighthouse as soon as Lily has her vision.
0: Yes. And the right. lighthouse gives vision. OK, that yeah, that makes sense. For some reason, I wasn't really thinking about the symbolism of the physical lighthouse and the job of the light. I kept thinking about the guys inside the lighthouse. They talked about yeah. them a lot, like the sort of the lonely You're guy the in the lighthouse. I've always... I've always found the idea of that like really evocative, like just the idea that some guy has to, you know, like there's places in the far North where there's some guy in a weather station by himself, maybe with one other guy or something like just this lonely vigil. Yeah. So I guess it's kind of the same. So the artist does like maybe the lonely, which is pretty much what Lily ends up doing. She's like by herself doing the painting. She wants everybody to just leave her alone and go away. She doesn't want anybody telling her what to do or leering over her shoulder while she paints. So it's a symbol for art or the artistic vision?
1: Yeah, maybe maybe I was wrong earlier about communication. I think I really mean perception. That's a the theme of the book. Because hmm. okay, because a lot of things in the book are taken from different points of view and then even like your perception of the first half of the book is changed based on looking back through the filter of time. And it's also it's it's kind of interesting that, you know, as they're reaching the lighthouse, Lily is more you know, she's tracking where their boat is, right? She's trying to watch them right as they're as they're reaching that that part. So it's kind of like they're sort of triangulated between Lily's artistic vision and the lighthouse, which is this thing they were they've been, you know, trying to get to from the, since the start of the book.
0: But it sounded like they go to the lighthouse sometimes, right? It's not like the only time they ever made it to the lighthouse because they were talking about how they bring I don't know. things they are talking about how they bring things to the guy in his song. Yeah. It seemed like it. They kind of did it regularly, but for some reason, this one particular trip was so difficult. I don't know. I don't know yeah. what to do with it.
1: I don't know if the kid. I don't know if John and Cam ever made it to the lighthouse. I don't think so. Right, because no, John. It starts. Kids... Right, it starts, and John is the one that wants to get to the lighthouse. John or He's James? Not... Oh, sorry, sorry, James, James, James. Yeah. yeah, okay.
0: I for all I know, I might have lost an entire kid there. It's definitely possible. <laughs> there's a like I said. There's more than a dozen. Named characters in this book, considering it's yeah, doesn't move around a whole lot, and it's not super long. I think,
1: I think a lot of that sense of like, oh, who's saying this and what is is sort of intentional. She wants to convey that idea of kind of a bustling yeah. house where it's yeah. like, oh, there are yeah. these people over here, there are these people over here, and then that totally changes in the second half of the book where it's like there are just a few people there. Right? There's James, mm-hmm. there's Cam, there's Lily, there's Mr. Cartwright, and there's and there's Mr. Ramsey. And then I can't remember the names, but the people they go to the lighthouse with in the boat that are fishermen.
0: Oh, I sort of forgot those guys were even there. Yeah, that's right. And what's the, I
1: think it's the guy and his son.
0: He keeps talking about the guys that are out on the boat and they've said that they're going to resist unto the death.
1: That was James's like he he kind of believed that he and Cam had this had this sort of, they call it a compact. They were going to resist against, their father, uh, right. Against the dad's tyranny, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and I thought that was kind of interesting because that harkens back to the very first part of the book where like, mm-hmm. you know, when the dad says that they can't go to the lighthouse and Virginia Wolf has that great passage where she's like, you know, if he could have, he would have like stabbed the sciss- scissors yeah. into his dad's chest. Yeah, but It's like, cause he feels things like that intensely right and so that intensity hasn't gone away with james is like i guess he must have been like maybe 18 or 19 at that at that point has it been 10 years or not that long i think it's a maybe a little over 10 years i think she says it in there at some point it's definitely not much less than 10 years
0: okay yeah no it's it's a it's a it's a little while, definitely but that's not that much time if you think about if you think about what happens over the course of 10 years you know, things weren't that different for me 10 years ago. In some ways, they were. Some things have changed. Some people are gone. You know, there's... So, yeah. some things can not I'm still drawing
1: change. maps at Golgo 13.
0: never did beat that game. never beat Solstice. There were a couple of ones I used to like to draw maps of and try to
1: beat, and I never... Golgo 13 is just an impossibly hard game.
0: They focused on selling you the game and not so much on mm-hmm. whether or not the game was... When I was a kid, my friend, for some reason, his parents just bought him, like, every Atari game. I mean, we, I would go over there on the weekends... And we would start through his list of games and try to play them. And I remember we would get out the E.T. game and we would put it in and we would try to play it. and We could never figure out how to play it. And I thought he yeah. and I were just like really bad at video games. And it was like it was only years, decades later where I realized, oh, no, this is like an infamously difficult video game that was yeah. poorly poorly put together and programmed and like nobody could figure out yeah. how to play this game and
1: they had to bury it in a land in a landfill in New Mexico and it's harder to program a game that's easy in
0: a way yeah right
1: cuz sure. cuz to, to to make a game easy you have to kind of make things match up it's a lot easier to not make things match up right
0: sure it's a, it's God. a lot easier to to build a car that doesn't work than it is to build one that exactly. does work right yeah <laughs> you know like <laughs> if you just build a a lump of wood with like three triangular wheels. Like it's a lot easier than actually
1: constructing one that, you know, can drive down the street. Like into the lighthouse, they should have had a thing where Lily's like, you know, it's a lot easier just to spill a paint can on this canvas. (laughs) I mean, it takes like, it takes literally like 10 seconds. This is way easier. Way easier. And that reminds me of what happens on the rowboat where Mr. Ramsey finally just offhand, you know, praises. Oh, right. Uh, James's way of, of of working the rudder. Yeah. Um, taking the rowboat up to the or maybe it's not a rowboat. It's sailboat.
0: Um, no, it's a sailboat. Yeah.
1: It, taking the sailboat up to the, the lighthouse. And James is just so happy at that one. Yeah. Even though it's like Mr. Ramsey didn't think anything of it. Right. He was just reading the whole way. And he was probably like, oh, good job. You know, you know
0: the lighthouse might represent the dad. Like the the love of the father, or something like that, like sort of the the affection of the father, like the the dad is this big, remote thing that everybody's always trying to reach, and his light is just kind of beaming around, like not really shining on you very often. i think they even I think there's even some comments about how every once in a while his light shines on you, and I think she says something oh that's
1: interesting, yeah, because they talk but, about the they even talk about the lighthouse, the light of the lighthouse going through the the house. Right, they talk about it like yeah. passing through the house at yeah. some point too. So yeah. it's kind of the dad and the lighthouse are kind of both. They have a presence in the house,
0: or the way, way that they only visit the house is like from time to time. Yeah, like the family yeah. only comes there and brings life into the house every once in a while. It's a hundred percent. There's a whole bunch of interpretive value to it. There's a whole bunch of symbolic value. I don't know. I think I, I think I'd want to read it more than once. I think if I was going to try to come up with,
1: I could imagine just reading. I think it's. It, I think it's such a good book. I could imagine it being one of these books that you could just pick it up occasionally and just read a passage and if you know it well enough I think like so. you could you could read like the dinner passage or something and be like okay what's going on here you could read the passage where you know they talk about like knowledge as the alphabet and like almost no one gets beyond like was it q R or something like that or, q, yeah q i didn't yeah. understand
0: i was thinking about that i was like what does he mean by that but then i realized if he's a metaphysical professor that makes more sense to me because i thought he was just like a I don't know, a history professor or something. I was like, what do you mean? Just read, read the next book. Like, but it, If you're trying to piece through like you know, epistemology or whatever it is that he studies, then that makes yeah. a lot more sense. It makes you trying to figure everything out. On the show, we usually ask what your biggest surprise was. I mean, I had no idea what I was getting into with this. So I have to say my biggest surprise would just be that middle chapter and, and Mrs. Ramsey just getting written off the show all of a
1: sudden yeah there should be a warning before this episode that's like you know maybe go and read the book first and then listen to the episode or something like that because i i approached the book the first time i read it in the exact same way where i had no idea what was happening Uh and so i really thought like the book was going to end with mrs ramsey finally being at the lighthouse and like i had no (laughs) idea i i couldn't believe it when she when she died halfway through Right. But a very, and that was very surprising to me. But one thing that also surprised me the first time I read it was how beautifully it comes together in the end, because I think it's very easy to take a very modernist sort of like complete, you know, completely scorched earth policy. And it's just like at the second half, everything, like all these bad things happen. And then like someone right. dies and someone else right. dies. And so to bring back this order and to bring back that extremely poetic moment where, they reach the lighthouse, and at the same moment, Lily finishes her painting. It's such a, a beautiful and, and sort of very poetic, very uh, harmonic, I guess, So there a way was, of finishing the book.
0: There was something I read, uh, and I don't remember where I read it, but it was about this book, and it was talking about modernism and kind of exactly what you're saying, how modernism is all about it predates deconstruction, but you know, what? It's, it's a lot about that. It's about just destroying everything, destroying all the rigid value systems and things like that that existed before. But then the normal, this book, yeah. this book in showing this kind of change and showing a kind of underlying permanence beneath that change and the comfort you can find in that. Yeah. And the fact that there's things that have changed, there's still some things that didn't change underneath. So the ending was the biggest surprise for you, the way that kind of tied together. It wasn't a big bleak Well,
1: not not so much the plot of the ending, but the tone of the ending. Yeah. Because I think if you if you take if you take the time passes section, it wouldn't be surprising. I would say, you know, Madame Bovary actually has more of a modernist ending. Because yeah, if you remember Madame Bo- Bovary, like dark. all the people, it, yeah, it kind of dark. follows the people. There was that, like that one, the pharmacist who wants the award or something, and he finally pays enough people and gets the award. Or yeah, I haven't read it for a while, but I remember something like that.
0: It's kind of similar
1: in a lot of ways. There's there's some similarities actually with the way that it talks about people's lives. And... Oh, sorry, she's such a skillful writer. That's also surprising. Is a you know, and that's and I kind of. You know, weirdly, that's sort of like the the getting to Q and then R and then beyond is like she's writing at this level that someone could like, you know, work at being a writer their whole life and they might not reach the oh, level yeah. of just oh. adroitness with language that she has. Oh, right?
0: absolutely. You're definitely toasting this classic. The only devil's advocating that I would do is, is this, do I know enough Virginia Woolf to know whether I think like this is her greatest book? Quite a few people do consider it to be. I think this one is a better book than Orlando. I found Orlando to be like an easy read. like Because on some level, it was just a historical fiction book in a lot of ways. It was just very easy to consume as a story that takes place in history and maybe don't get too bogged down about the symbolism. I feel like there was quite a bit of it in there. This one, I felt like I was grappling with something difficult. But I think I'm going to go ahead and toast it. This is a good good writer. I would recommend her. Cheers. Thank you. I would recommend Talisker Scotch.
1: It's pretty good. How you feel? You, this is your drink. You like this though, so I love it. I love it. Um, I would probably recommend finding someplace where it's not. How much did you pay for it? Seventy-two dollars. Seventy-two dollars.
0: But I'm thinking it might be more expensive
1: right now. Maybe I infl- wonder if it's a supply chain. If it it's might a be a supply, supply chain, chain thing or something.
0: I don't know. Maybe New York. I honestly don't know. I I can't tell because there's so much inflation going on right now in the economy. So yeah. I go on and I'll get something here in New York and I'll be like, oh my God, wait, is it is it that I live in Manhattan or is it or is it expensive everywhere? Like I really don't know. Yeah. Like
1: I remember going to places like going to wine stores in New York, and you can find things for maybe it's different if you're looking for a particular brand like Talisker. I did actually have to go to
0: multiple liquor stores, which I've never had to do before. This was the first time I've had to go to a second. Oh,
1: place. so maybe maybe there is like a shortage or something like that. Made, that actually wouldn't
0: the guy said at the second place, which was a little bigger than the first one I went to, and by the way, the second place over on Broadway you can actually walk into the showroom of the liquor store. There's not like a bulletproof glass window protecting you from like oh, nice. The, the one over yeah. here by my house. Like there's a tell the guy what you want and he goes and gets it. But I went into the liquor store on Broadway and I was like, do you have Talisker? And he's like, no, sorry. And I like looked over and I was like, what about that bottle of Talisker right there? And he was like, oh, I guess it just came in. And I was like, what were you saving that for somebody? Like, and then he's like, yeah. that'll be
1: $72. I was like, "Jeez, oh, All right. Okay. well i think there was a surcharge for showing him that he was wrong yes like yeah probably we're gonna go ahead and toast this classic i think i'm raising my glass talisker clink
0: clink i think for toasting the classics uh i'm gonna go ahead and uh, call it a night uh this is dave macarthur saying goodbye
1: jay Schwag saying goodbye as well
0: all right peace out everybody that's it for episode 63 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, stay tuned to find out what we'll be drinking as we don our flannel shirts for a discussion of Nirvana's album Nevermind. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know your favorite modernist authors. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at nuisance Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classic.